This is The Crucible. The JRTC Experience. This is Light Fighter Lessons. In this series, we discuss infantry warfighting skills and lessons learned in a decisive action training environment for large-scale combat operations at JRTC. Hi, I'm Colonel Matt Hardman, the commander of operations group here at the Joint Readiness Training Center, and we have our first three-peat Sergeant First Class Manship, and he's going to bring to us uh, the rest of his story, uh, Travels in Arnland. So we, when we left off, uh, Third Platoon Bravo Company 2505 uh, had a, a de successful defense. Um, vicinity Rancho 45 uh, came out of that experience and, and want to pick back up where we left. And uh, since you're a winner, you get sprinkles. Thanks. All right. Tell us, uh, tell us what happened uh, in Arnland uh, after the defense. Uh, so after the defense, uh, we... In, in our minds and in all of the, the leaders' minds, like one of the things at the forefront was always the transition from the defense to the offense and how to do that quickly, how to do it effectively. And so I, we, we start, everybody starts lobbying for how they think that the transition should go. My, my lobby was like, hey, we need to push a platoon out right now to establish a patrol base over at one of the little water crossings that's forward. Um, and then we'll kick out, you know, OPs and, you know, small kill teams with AT systems to just disrupt any of the obstacles that they're trying to build because now they're on the defense. And so for, forefront in my mind is, okay, now let's do what they just did to us. Let's just do it better. Because our, our people are better. I believe that. I think that like m my paratroopers are the best paratroopers in the 82nd or in, in the Army. So if I have that belief, like, okay, my people are better, then let's just go execute the same thing. We'll just do it better than them. Rule one, exert dominance. <laughs> okay. Well, it didn't, it didn't end up. <laughs> it didn't it didn't, that way. It didn't work like that. Um, so we, you know, everybody's lobbying for how they, they think that um, we, should, we should move and how we should expand, you know, and rapidly transition from the, uh, the defense to the offense. And uh, for whatever reason, we, we just sat there for another uh, probably day and a half. And it was, it's frustrating on the ground, but I also understand that there's way more factors that are at play. Morgan Freeman voice. In fact, they did not exert dominance. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. So we, uh, we, we continued to sit there and, and you know, try, to, try to figure out when, when and how we were gonna transition to the offense. And then eventually we, we do push out and we we start making what do you think Geronimo did with that day and a half I think they <laughs> I mean probably if if I was them real life like building obstacles building a lot of counter mobility obstacles and and really like using that time to uh, to 
impose their will like hey you're not gonna go where you think you're gonna go like this is gonna have a cratering charge this is gonna have an IED and um, it, it presents multiple dilemmas and I in in my ideal world I would love would have loved to at least push an, an OP out to you know one of those low water crossings at least the ones that we thought we were gonna take gain and maintain contact right right um, but it didn't work like that okay and, yeah. So, so what happened? Life, life goes on. Well, we we sat there for another another day, and we you know received periodic harassing fires from Geronimo, who was you know most likely just trying to trying to keep us stationary. Like, hey, we if we give them one or two casualties at this phase, like then we can rely on them staying in the same place for another hour or two hours, whatever their assessment is. Um, so we received some some um, harassing fires. We're doing TLPs um, for the, the transition to the offense. And then ultimately, you know, during period of darkness, we, we begin our movement back out to lower crossing 11. And then subsequently to lower crossing 10. Um, and then, so we, we get to low water crossing 10 and we, well, first we get to low water crossing 11, clear low water crossing 11, but there's obstacles, IEDs. It is essentially cratered and impassable. So now we have, uh, the additional problems so that he, he did what you feared he would do. Right. right. Yeah. And now we have the problem set of like how do we maintain a G lock? How do we how do we bypass this and continue to clear to low water crossing ten without being on an island? And we talk about doing research earlier in that podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Fitzgerald where he's talking about how op four operates, you know, one of his kind of what I in my opinion, one of his decision points has to do with, you know, how rapidly do they do we RTU transition to reducing those obstacles? Because while we did move past it, we were on an island. We didn't have any ability to resupply there. We didn't have any ability to Kazavak without you know, moving probably a, a K and a half with with some casualties, which we ultimately ended up doing Got later on. Yeah. Um, I mean, sometimes, you know, it's, it's hard to be hard. Yeah. But. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, the, the. Yeah, I mean, you now can we do don't it. have a G lock. It's just very inefficient right. uh, to not have a G lock, right? I mean, we can untether, we can get around obstacles, um, but, but now it, everything gets harder from a resupply and ammunition, batteries, water, and then evacuating casualties. And the benefit of, of kind of untethering is it lets us then ideally reduce these obstacles out of contact, mm -hmm. right? Um, but we got to reduce the obstacle, <clears throat> right? Okay. And then we there was there were some additional problems. You know, we we talk about problem sets that Geronimo imposes. I think a lot of the problems that we you know encounter are self-imposed. Right. So there's give, give me some examples. Well, our company trains got stuck. So now not only are we unable to um, to bypass this obstacle, but now our company trains is stuck. So even if we were able to bypass the obstacle, which a route did open up later on, we still have no capabilities for resupply. 
um, comms for whatever reason in that terrain was rough and we were fighting for comms going through a c and e and it was it was a hard time i think uh, to be truthful our company struggled with comms like the entire rotation and that was one of the things that surprised me like going into this rotation i was very confident that we were going to be effective with our communications platforms we do things like once a week our battalion will do comexes and like we all of the systems are in in place by the battalion by the company to make sure that like comms is a priority and maintaining communications is a priority and i was very surprised at how poorly we did at maintaining communications so that was another self-imposed why, why do you think that was um so i think that some of it can be boiled down to conditions and it's it's as simple as you know we whenever we're talking about establishing a patrol base in ranger school it's like get communications with your higher headquarters if you can't get higher communications with your higher headquarters because it's incumbent on the lower unit to establish communications with the higher headquarters then move um and i think that it was it was a interesting dynamic for the company leadership because they're looking for locations that will allow communications with the higher headquarters and also allow communications and command and control of the platoons but we're tied to the terrain it's not it's not a patrol base where you just want to you you can patrol base in vicinity of this general grid square and just you're, you're hiding and you're just looking for a piece of terrain that you can communicate from. No, you have to own this piece of terrain. Yeah, like you, as part you, of the bigger scheme. You have to be here. And yeah. so if there doesn't have, you know, a advantageous terrain for communications, then you, you gotta fight through it and you gotta figure out a way to make it happen. And um, so we, we started using things like the, the Wi-Fi pucks in a limited capacity because obviously that's not a secure means of of communicating. And the second you turn on that Wi-Fi puck in a modern day in, environment, like people know where you're at. Yeah, I mean, as Geronimo showed, right? Well, as it turns out, <laughs> more the Morgan Freeman voice. As soon as we turn on Wi-Fi pucks, we started receiving IDF, <laughs> LOR across the <laughs> So, so you know it. Uh, it's one thing to like finally achieve comms and then but it's it's also important to to evaluate the way in which you're doing it and evaluate your your systems in general that i think that that's one of the things that we need to we need to work on moving forward is just the the overall you know communications platforms yeah and i think you know the this is one you know, when we come here and we fight in this environment um, under high stress uh, in conditions that are not of our choosing, uh, we learn some stuff. And, you know, we learn about doing it under load, right? We learn about, um, you know, hey, there's where we want to be and there's where we have to be. Um, and so I think it gives us the opportunity, you know, to really see what this looks like in reality, right? Um, 
And so well, we got to take that back, and, and that's how we have to, to practice communications back at home station. We have to, to practice, you know, at the battalion level, I think creating an environment where people can talk, right? You know, um, it's how we employ retrans. It's how we employ the, the mesh network in a way that, you know, it's built into everything that we do, uh, acknowledging that we're going to have people end up in places that are hard to talk from. We can help that when we use retrans, when we use TSM repeaters in a place that allows us to maintain that comms architecture. And then it is the discipline on the subordinates to maintain communications with higher headquarters. Mm. But the hire has to create the environment to enable it to happen. Now, in fairness, your company commander has been in position for about 30 days. Right. Your battalion commander has been in position all of about three weeks, right? Right. During all this. So um, it's hard. If it was easy, everybody would do it, right? Um, and, and that pace of understanding that there's um, comms architectures and, and platforms that work great for certain things, and then there's we're going to make choices where we say we are going to go to the A here for this amount of time for a very specific purpose and reason until we get back on the offense, until we get back in a position that we can maximize our ATAC or whatever we're trying to use. Um, so what, uh, I, I think I ran into you up at uh, Low Water 10. That is where you you came by. I th it probably had something to do with us employing the Black Hornet. Yeah, so um, talk to me about what was going on up at Low Water 10. So once we uh, established security, at low order 10, um, the the company commander was, you know, back a couple hundred meters trying to look for terrain where he could achieve comms. And up at, you know, the, the platoon security area, we were receiving accurate and effective indirect fire. Um, we, we had probing reconnaissance patrols. Um, and it was, it was at a point where we were at a disadvantage on the offense against a degraded enemy, and I like I started to get frustrated with the situation. Was and was like, all right, well, let's let's figure out where these these people are at. Like, let's go, let's do something. Let's we're not just gonna sit here and receive accurate and uh, effective indirect fire and just die on this hill. That's not what we're gonna do right now. Um, so I have a semi-experienced Black Hornet, um, you know, drone pilot, I think. I don't know if we're going to call them pilots. Right, but let's call him pilot. Yeah. <laughs> right? He's, uh, he's got, you know, he's got a watch and good hair and everything. <laughs> so he, um, but we, we employ our, our Black Hornet in a very prescriptive way. Um, I, I kind of, limit the ways in which we we employ the the black hornet based off of the the capabilities of the of the user which is something you have to be familiar with so we'll employ it you know down a road at, you know 300 meters scan left right scan left right every 100 meters and then bring it back because ultimately we only have about not a, a couple of minutes of of battery life um, or we'll send it straight up and and pan uh, so we sent out the first one, actually got within 10 feet of Geronimo, and they had no idea that that, that Black Hornet was there. He's, and so we, we saw where they were coming from, but we, we just could not find the main group of them to to actually employ HE. And 
you know, that's around the time that you, you stopped by and you were like, yeah, because we want to kill the enemy with HE, right? I was like, yes, I really do, but I got, <laughs> I got to find him first, I'm sir. I'm doing I'm my best. <laughs> um, and so then How, we... What, what HE we're going to use to bring to bear, right? So we're having trouble talking to battalions, so we're going to use 60s to do it? Right. Okay. And, and only in, within the context of, like, I, I think it would, number one, it would be, like, my commander's decision. Like, yeah. at that point, my, my job is to, like, inform the commander. But if I can inform my commander, hey, I've got a company size right. of dismounts that are at this exact grid location, so, then that's... So what I was hoping for, because I'd seen this in, in two other locations, um, quick... Quick fire, ready to shoot, general vicinity, mortars laid on, UAS confirms deny, gone. Shoot. That's what we want, right? I mean, we, it's got to be, you know, because once somebody sees that drone, you know, if they pick up that, huh, they're going to move, right? right. Um, so we want it to be, you know, at my command, ready to go. Uh, that's how we're going to kill people with that's it. That's definitely so, a smarter way than the we, way we were doing it. Which takes practice, right? right. And, and it's a drill that you know I think we can work at the company and the platoon level. Uh, but that's the name of the game. And then ideally, we're shooting somebody else's you know indirect fire. Right. Mm -hmm. in, a, in Nirvana world, it's um, you know it's a pre-planned target that's been tech rehearsed, and it's like okay, hey, this is the general vicinity. We put the UAS up. Uh, you know, at my command, right 100, fire for effect. <laughs> Right, and then you know, whole company disappears. I mean, that's really what we want. I mean, we we have to have it tied that tight. And we had uh, two units uh, from the Panthers do that. All right, it was it was devastating. It was awesome. That's awesome. Uh, so that's the name of the game. Where we want to be. All right. So we but we did not get that. No. So tell me how so tell me how the rest of the attack went. Well, um, so the I I actually think that that day was was pretty pivotal for the the mindset of the platoon because that is that is where we switched into like it's not that we weren't aggressive before that but the mindset definitely had a, like a just a tangible transition to violence. Um, we had a two-person OP Right, a, a two-person uh, probing patrol walking down a road towards us and engage us and run, and it was about their third time doing that. And I finally was just frustrated with it. And I was like, I looked at my weapon squad leader and like two of the riflemen near me, because it's just an LGOP at that point. I said, run them down. And so my weapon squad leader, a team leader, and two riflemen sprinted after these dudes who were running away because that's that was their their ttp and could it have been a lead into a baited ambush absolutely um but at that point we we were just we transitioned to just sheer violence and they ended up running those those two down and and then you know once they're 30 meters away they realize oh no like these guys are coming after us yeah. like i didn't i thought they were just gonna sit there and do you know the slow left side right side but no they they ran them down and and you know, like got miles kills on them. So like yeah. bona fide, yeah. took them out. And, and you know, so on one hand you're right, like there's always a risk of baited ambush. The other is like Geronimo will tell you like the, the enemy they hate the most is the enemy that will maintain contact and violently go after them, mm -hmm. right? And you know, ideally sensor, indirect fire, and when in doubt, you know, aggressive violence. violence.
Um, okay. And so uh, what happens next in the fight? How does the battalion get back on the offense? So we, I think we ended up consolidating um, for an attack on Bouchon. And I think luckily at this point, Bravo Company was establishing blocking positions for the, the main effort, which was yeah. another one of our companies. And at this point, I, this is day six, and I think that we'd gone probably, most of my platoon had gone four days with a total of two hours of sleep. Um, this is where like, the sleep deprivation was. That movement from low water crossing 10 to Bouchon was yeah. hallucination city. And you guys were isolating to the north. Right. Right. All right, and so what, like, what cool things did you see out in the Dagobah system? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I've been there before, and yeah. I recognize the signs and symptoms. Yeah, like, so I, we got a task force senior that refers to this period of ground between uh, Rancho 45 and Bouchon Merez as the sketch, because it's a sketchy piece of terrain. So what happened up in there in the sketch? So um, uh, at least, you know, personally, the the hallucinations always start the same. It always starts with what you think is movement in the periphery, and you like look over there, and there's there's nothing. But it always looks like shadow people just moving <laughs> in the periphery. It makes you very paranoid. And then it moves. Just to, because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> then you move to faces in bushes and trees. And when you start seeing faces in bushes and trees, you know that like the next thing is gonna be crazy. I've seen I've seen kids, you know, feeding a leaf into a bush thinking it was a Coke machine. Yeah. Um, I've seen a, a myriad of, of people going through hallucinations. And I thought, uh, so I, in my mind I was like, okay, I know what this is, I've been here before. Like when something, cool. <laughs> when, something, when something crazy happens, it's not real. And I had, in my opinion, one of the worst hallucinations you could have at that point, which was because it was so potentially real. Um, I looked on the ground and I just saw water everywhere that I was gonna step. Like it was like, there's a puddle there, there's a puddle there. If there was a spot of moonlight, it turned into a water puddle. And if I'd, a, if I'd a seen a Coke machine in the middle of the woods, I'd have known, okay, I'm hallucinating right now. If I'd have seen, you know, uh, an F-16 parked on Artillery Road, all right, I'm hallucinating right now. But I was looking at water puddles. So as I'm doing this movement, everybody else just seems to be trudging right through it. And I was like, man, I, I just, I'm so tired of my feet being wet. Like, I'm just going to do the little dance, so I'm hopping and skipping, and my medic looks at me, and she's like, Sergeant, what are you doing? <laughs> I was like, I just really want to keep my feet dry for like another couple of minutes before we like inevitably walk through some stream. And she's like, there's no water. There's no, that's, that's dry land. I was like, oh no, <laughs> oh no. So I, for, for a solid, half an hour to an hour I was out there looking like a fool just hopping from one spot to another on perfectly dry land <laughs> thinking that I was avoiding you know that we were walking through a swamp or something like that and I'm looking at my ATAC and looking at the elevation I'm like man this this place is you know it's just really swampy like I guess it is Louisiana right you know but um 
So at that point, um, it was also kind of a bittersweet moment for me too because um, I was at such a degraded point in my like personal performance at that point. Like when you reach the the point of hallucinations, like there's there's a series of things that went wrong. Like you should not get to the point of like hallucinating, especially as a leader. Like you should know the signs, symptoms. You should stop and be like and figure out a way to personally recover. And I didn't do that effectively. So like one of the weaknesses, one of my like personal AARs was like take care of yourself better, and you know don't try to do everything. So when that happened, again you know. The squad leaders and team leaders in my formation are amazing, and my weapon squad leader just like he just he just knew. And there's there's such a hey, hey little guy, I got you. <laughs> there's, there's this mutual trust. Luckily, you know, the, everybody, all the NCOs within the formation are okay with like being vulnerable. And I looked at him and I was like, hey man, like I'm I'm hurting. He's like, no problem. Like there was not another word said about it. He went up. He moved to the choke point with the medic and. And essentially, I, I hate to admit this, but I, essentially, I was a Joe in my own formation. Yeah, member of squad. <laughs> I was. I was. Right. A, I essentially became a rifleman. But right. I, I'm, I'm proud to say that I can rely on on my yeah. people in that manner. Like that, we have built that level of trust, and and that I, we can be honest with each other, and I can be honest with them, and they can be honest with me about when we're hurting and, and when we need help. Um, and so, like my my weapon squad leader is a superstar, and he just he just took the reins and did a good job. Like yeah. it's not like he took the reins and then you're like, man, I really wish that. But he did the same things that I would do, which is the dream. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I appreciate you sharing that with us. All right, so the the battalion uh, clears Bouchon. Um, sun comes up. And then what? Uh, we we consolidate in Bouchon, and we're coming up with. Did the, you get some sleep? I. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yep. I did end up getting some sleep that night. Yep, that was uh the, I think the, the night after the hallucinations, I think I got like five hours sleep. So I got pretty good sleep that night. Um, uh, my 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 people took care of me. So. We consolidate in Bouchon, and we're ready to transition to the final assault on Sagacite. But there's a pretty big movement between yeah. there and Sagacite. Solid eight, ten kilometers. <laughs> it's and and through hard terrain. Yeah. Like there's several significant water features, you know, through that that terrain that are, are gonna cause some serious heartache. And later on, they did cause some serious heartache. And ultimately, the, the decision was made that we were going to move along Artillery Road um, as a battalion, like consolidated, and make you know, a, a final push through the this disruption zone, the security zone, and, and into, uh, into Sagacite. And Geronimo did a fantastic job of defending in depth. We, you know, Aco, you know, moves ahead of us, and you can just hear the the 240s just rocking. You can hear, and then next thing you know, like Delta Company is pushing forward, and 
I think we get the radio call like all of Delta Company's dead. It's like, this isn't good, this is bad. Um, and ultimately when Bravo Company got to the front, what we discovered was that they their engagement areas, like their choices of terrain were fantastic. They were perched up on high ground and in the AAR, you know, this this comes out that they were because they were a degraded force, they would employ the BMPs with thermal optics to scan that low ground over the main avenues of approach with some small obstacles tied in. But most prominently, there was big water features on either side. So the, the tactical obstacles were tied into the natural obstacles, which gave them additional coverage. It, it gave them the ability to restrict the RTU, RTU's movement so that they had to cover less ground with less people, which is what they had to do. They, they had to do that. Um, but yeah, we were, we were, there was points at which, you know, we were in an engagement with a, a squad size element, a technical vehicle, and a BMP up front. And, you know, the first platoon is calling, like, hey, you know, second, third platoon, I need an AT system up here now. Like, we've already fired one, we've got a mobility kill. I need another AT weapon system. So, you know, grab my, my goose gunner and we're running through, you know, the thick stuff and drop waist deep into a, a pond. It's like, ah, I'm sorry, buddy. Like, <laughs> I can't get to you. You're on your own. Um, and it, you know, it was a, it, their, their choice of engagement areas was fantastic. And that movement was incredibly difficult. Inevitably, we finally do get up to our assault positions and get positioned for uh, the final assault on Sagacite. The final assault on Sagacite was an emotional event for a lot of us. My PL got killed like immediately, and um, I wish uh, I, w I wish that wasn't. He got killed on the infill into, and you know you always want you know your your new guys, the the individuals that have never been to JRTC to to make it to Sagacite just to like have the experience of Sagacite, even if they die in Sagacite, like it's at least you. You got to Sagacite. You got to Sugar Gordon, yeah. Um, so we were in our battalion assault position, and then, you know, ACO, the remnants of ACO moves forward, and they cross this LDA in front of us, and we were supposed to, ACO was supposed to breach, and then they were supposed to take a northern end of Sugar Gordon, and then we were supposed to flow through their breach and move to a southern portion of Shugart Gordon. We are gonna move through their objective, essentially at pull, and clear the, the next piece of terrain. And then ACO got wiped out. And we were like, oh no. Like, but ACO, to their credit, ran into like the main defensive line. Like there was a whole, it was company v company with a BMP. Like it was not gonna be good conditions for them. Um, so, ACO's done, and we're, it's radio silence. We don't know that ACO's dead, but I hear nothing on the radio, and I hear a BMP is still shooting, and I hear nothing shooting back, so I'm like, oh no, this is not good. Um, and then BMP comes for us, turns, we're all in the low ground, hit it with an AT system, but it's just a mobility kill, and it was just open season on us. So we 
LGOP. I think we made it out of that engagement. We we inevitably did get another AT system up there, killed that BMP, the the squad of dismounts on the other side, and the remnants of the company were uh, our second platoon, which was in the rear of the formation, and six of my people. And so I took my little six-man element, and we went and stormed Sagacite essentially alone because we we didn't know that second platoon was even still alive. They weren't on the radio. We didn't have comms. I was like, okay, well, a sixer. It was me, my weapon squad leader, one of my other squad leaders, my AT gunner that was with me, and then a, a magic saw gunner managed to. <laughs> so this is poor kid, like, just managed to get out of there. So we uh, we think we're the only survivors of that engagement. We're like, all right, well, we're gonna go do what paratroopers do. We're gonna go fight onto the the objective, and we're gonna we're gonna end up breaching. Ended up linking in with uh, the battalion commander and the, the battalion headquarters element walking through there, uh, essentially in an LGOP, and the, the brigade sergeant major. And the brigade sergeant major was like, you got any machine guns? It's like, I got a saw. How many rounds? 150. Well, it's going to be a heck of a support by fire. <laughs> and we're literally making this plan with the brigade sergeant major, like he's like, all right, I'm the weapon squad leader now. <laughs> like I'm, I all own this support by fire, and the the battalion commander is like now the squad leader, and we just like, elgopped into this little, you know, breaching element. Luckily, we we essentially flowed through with one P and just assisted one P with their now very large objective because they they had some success down south. Um, did the did the final clearance and then. Um, on our way down south to what was our objective, our planned objective, we were going to take our six people and just go take that. Uh, discover that second platoon just managed to make it out of there, and we just, for whatever reason we just couldn't get them on comms. But it was that moment in the in the movie where like all the the heroes reunite <laughs> at the like, oh, you made it! Like it was uh, it was very like end of the Lord of the Rings like. Frodo and, and <laughs> you know the whatever the the main characters are all reunite and it's like oh you know you start telling each other stories of how you how you managed to survive but ultimately it was a uh, it it was hard enough that final objective that there was no there was not really any controlling it it was. LGOPs doing what LGOPs do best and just communication on the ground and just everybody executing discipline initiative like within the commander's intent and ultimately in a LISCO fight like I hope it's not like that yeah. but sometimes you're gonna fight you know a superior enemy like a, an enemy with a, a superior firepower, and if you make it out of there, like you just got to take what you got left and do the best you can. The the only reason that, frankly, we didn't get obliterated at Sugar Gordon was, we did, we did get effective brigade fires, right? So the the division shot some high Mars, and then the brigade uh, got effective uh, fires on the objective and, and nice. the enemy. Uh, but it was pretty wobbly there coming in because 
really we hadn't planned to fight to the objective. Right. Right. And, you know, you kind of describe what that looked like and felt like. And, you know, I mean, Geronimo, he is a pro at retrograde. Um, he's a pro. And he's, you know, multiple supplementary and alternate positions in mm -hmm. depth. What, what, are the, what are the big things, before we talk about the live fire, what are the big things that you learned in that fight to Sugar Gordon um, that you'll take back when you're a first sergeant? I mean, for sure, defense in depth. Um, and the, the easy, like, fight to on and, you know, beyond the, the objective, um, making sure that those things are planned. I think the, the importance of, you know, gaining and maintain, maintaining contact with your, your smallest element and just constantly trying to disrupt using all of the assets that you have to your capability, you know, at our platoon level, we have the small UAS um, that we could use to employ some sort of fires. Um, really, I think the the key is synchronization, and synchronization. You know, in in your guys' podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Fitzgerald, like you guys talk about, like it's not it's simple, but it's not easy, and it's a it's a simple concept like yeah we want to incorporate all of our weapon systems at once we want to in employ all of our capabilities at a decisive point and when you talk about that it sounds simple but it was very very difficult yeah. for for the movement from to the objective we we didn't organize as a battalion or even at company level as if we were in a movement to contact Mm -hmm. Right, and we basically got into a battalion file, and you know, if we're organized for a movement to contact, two up, one back, um, this gets easier. Especially if we put squad out in front or scouts out in front of us, small UAS in front of us, and then we're making contact with the smallest unit possible. Our fires are tight. We're reducing uh, the enemy with uh, HE. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's, you know, watch, and I, li I watch your, your battalion's AR, and that, that was one of the things that came out. It was like, okay, we, we got to organize for this. We have doctrine that tells us how to do it. Um, it's hard because that terrain is god awful. And so it also, I think, gets to like, we got to be comfortable moving through that terrain. We got to be practiced at it. Sure. That's, I mean, actually, that's, that's also, uh, I think, a key takeaway is like, don't be afraid to just do the unexpected. Yeah. Like the enemy doesn't think that you're gonna go through the waist deep pond. Nope. He doesn't want you to. To to do it. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Okay, so we go up to Live Fire and you know, t talk me through what was your experience up there? What what did your team get out of that? How how'd you how do you think the team performed? What were the big lessons? Live Fire was a blast. Um, literally and figuratively. It was uh, I I'm proud of our people because I think that our our company ripped through there like a chainsaw. It was uh, it was violent in the sense of like massing effects. So I think that was where we finally achieved synchronization of fires and maneuver uh, was at live fires and and there was the the balance of tempo and, and tempo does not necessarily, you know, equal speed. It's like okay, push up to this phase line and you gotta hold. You gotta wait for the effects of, you know, whatever 
indirect weapon system at that point is firing and stay out of the reds if we want to repeat. Um, and then, then you push to the next one. And you're, the working of the echelon of fires, in an, an ideal world, you know, that it's done smoothly so that you know, the echelon of fires is turning off and turning on as you're, as you're moving. You don't have to do the push-pull, but you know, there's, that's part of the Experience. control of it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think that that was where we really started to achieve the synchronization of fires and maneuver was at the live fires. And I mean, it's a, it's a good place to do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, the breach for us was the in the blank iteration. Our obscuration was terrible. Um, I think we thought we could throw hand smoke a lot farther than we uh, actually could. Hand smoke is gross, <laughs> right? Um, hand smoke's gross. Yeah, hand yeah. smoke's to get a squad across the street, not to not to breach a monoware obstacle. But it but we in did. live fire. We got it. We fired a, a smoke target yeah. in live fire, and in the blank iteration, we were throwing throwing little piddly hand yeah. hand smoke, and uh, and we weren't throwing it. People's it, Liberation Army. It was, it was that is pretty, not awesome. It was pretty bad. Yeah. Um, clearance of buildings was excellent. Control at the breach, I think, was was pretty good. I think that the the biggest AR point from the transition of Blank to live was like the use of the smoke target for obscuration, and um, the use of like the the echelon of fires, the the control of fires, and, and controlling the tempo. When we finally went to do live fires, it was awesome. Like it, live fires for us was was great. You know, we we did objective cheetah, which was the the final little separated. Um, Village and and uh, I think they they gave us some stats, something to the tune of like out of 301 engagements that like you guys engaged, like effectively put down 278 targets. So the guys were accurate. Um, their team leaders were were giving good sectors of fire, giving people like proper, you know, fire commands. Um, there was the the machine guns were working. And not just in the sense of like firing on target, but like the the traverse, the search, like the affecting the entire um, the entire objective. I think that the the live fires was a f it was the a fun live fire. Yeah. Most of your live fires aren't fun, but <laughs> this one was fun. That's um, good to hear. All right, so um, kind of what are, what are the three biggest things you've kind of learned? Right, and you got to come here as a guest OCT uh, back in the fall. You're back here. You fought your way all the way across Florida and Box up to uh, Peace on for live fires. What are the big three things you learned? Um, <clears throat> okay, so I actually have have these written down because I was hoping you were going to ask this. They, so this doesn't necessarily tie directly to the box, but it did affect the box. So number one, prioritize culture over metrics. Um, I, uh, my platoon was achieving success in places that other platoons and other companies were not because of culture, because of a, a prioritized, you know, will over skill, and then like ultimately you you culminate with will, skill, teamwork. Um, so, 
I think that prioritizing culture, and we in our last conversation we talked about um, what that looks like as far as like developing the culture of will in your in your formation, how to do that. So, but really prioritizing culture over metrics. And as like a suggestion to anybody watching, um, look up the law of diffusion of innovation. Listen to um, Simon Sinek. Like start with why. Read Small Unit Leadership by uh, Colonel Dandridge Malone. And then the, the di Dichotomy of Leadership by um, Jocko Willink is like, that's, that's been the model. The, those, those four things have been the model for cultural change um, in the Muldoon platoon and in, in Bino. Um, number two, evaluate your systems. I, I think as, a, as an army, most of the time we do a very good job of demanding inputs. And, and we do a good job of, of trying to paint a picture to inform a commander. Does it always work out like that? No, but we, I think that we always do a good job of demanding the effort. I sometimes question if we make an equal effort to demand the outputs that enable the rifleman. Um, so evaluate your systems and look at not just the inputs that inform a commander, but what are the outputs that inform a rifleman? like the person that's actually pulling the trigger. And yeah, like I, I, uh, you know, I look at headquarters, right? And it's a value chain, right? So reporting from, you know, up to when a rifleman reports to a squad, I, I, my expectation is that report is better and refined from the squad to the platoon, from the platoon to the company, from the company to the battalion. You know, when that gets up aggregated up the value chain, every headquarters provides value because we put more experience and then at the company level we put a, or at the battalion level we put a staff, mm -hmm. right? And I think the reverse is true that we've got to provide value down, right? Um, and so, you know, for, for a rifleman, whatever we deliver to a rifleman should be really straightforward because he doesn't have a staff. <laughs> His staff is right. the battalion and the brigade. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, you know. Sustainment's like the easy example of that. Like we. We don't make this harder on the rifleman. Um, we deliver water uh, when and where he needs it uh, so that he's not carrying a 120-pound rucksack. And I, I know your division commander feels pretty strongly about that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I, I mean, one of the other things he feels pretty strongly, at least I have been told he feels very strongly about, and I completely agree, one of the other systems that I think enable a warfighter is commander's intent. Yeah. Like commander's intent down to the lowest level to include key tasks is enabling a rifleman to act with discipline initiative. In order for that to happen, squad leaders, team leaders, platoon sergeants need to be doctrinally sound. They need yep. to be able to be the translator between the commander and the rifleman. What is the difference between defeat and destroy? If, if we should be able to go execute with a task and purpose and commander's intent, but we don't know what the definition of the task is, then are, can we actually say that we're doing our job as, no, I, as NTOs? I, you know, uh, Joel Beagle was my division commander. I mean, he talked about this. You know, it's the, the role of, of leaders to translate to the next echelon, right? Um, and uh, no, I, I completely agree. And, and you know, for, um, you know, I think solicit feedback um, 
through iteration, you know, as a commander from subordinates about your intent is, I think, important, right? Because that's the only lot, like, platoon leaders don't have intent. Company commanders, battalion commanders, brigade commanders, division commanders have intent. And, um, and it's, you know, it's meant for two levels down. But then we got to be comfortable hearing, like, hey, sir, I understand kind of what we we're trying to do, but I didn't quite understand, like, your intent and why it's worded that way. Because, you know, how many times are you going to write in 10 as a brigade commander? Not, not that many. Right. Right? So it, it's okay if you don't knock it out of the park on the first time. Uh, but by getting feedback is, is how you really start to determine whether or not it's sinking in. And, um, yeah, I, I agree. And, we got, and it's, the purpose of it is to enable subordinates to act, um, you know, in the, in the means that's appropriate for the operation. All right, what's next? Uh, and then uh, when in doubt, execute violently. Right. The, Always a good rule. I like so yeah. As as an army, like we're professional and we we put on a clean uniform and we have a clean shave and, and we got a nice haircut and we we conduct ourselves professionally because that's that's the conduct that's expected of us. But I, at the end of the day, we control a monopoly on violence, and the rifleman in a fight is not expected to be prim and proper. He's expected to be violent. And you have to flip the switch when it's time to go. Like, if somebody shoots at me, then I, there's, there's going to be a lot of expletives that follow. Right. Um, and so I think that, like, when in doubt, whatever the most violent course of action that you as an individual can execute is, do that within control of, yeah. you know, certain... Well, and certain this leaders. idea of, like, turning on and off, right? You know, uh, I've always hated the, uh, you know, infantrymen are, you know, drunks and fight and all that. This is ridiculous, right? We're professionals. Um, but if I get in a gunfight with somebody, I'm going to dominate them, <laughs> right? I'm going to make it an unfair fight very quickly uh, and dominate. And, um, y you know, it, it's... Um, the group dynamics of this, of how, and, and the psychological component of how we impose our will on the enemy, I think first and foremost starts with how we impose our will on our own formation. I mean, you talked about culture. I mean, we, we mold an organization to be obedient. We mold an organization to follow our cultural norms. Um, and then when we say go, we expect it to go. Um, and good, good units do that really, really well. Um, you gotta be able to turn this on and we started this conversation up at Trezor, you know, kind of right here, ready, 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 okay, nope. Ready, 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 nope. Go. And, and then, you know, uh, that's frankly how we decisively win fights. Um, and, you know, I think part of this too, you know, at the small unit level, um, you know, it's, you read enough history, you read enough of these examples, you know, and Geronimo sort of does this every single month. I mean, they're very disciplined in what they do, but when they, when, you know, when they see an opportunity of weakness, they take it, and they take it decisively, and they're very aggressive in how they do it. They're equally aggressive of how they bound out of contact. Right. Right? And um, 
you know, I think there's a lesson to be learned in that. But I think that only comes with a ton of practice and a ton of discipline um, to be able to do that. You know, the, the firefight that's 30 seconds uh, generates a ton of violence, dominates the enemy, and then rapidly turns off. That's like a powerful thing. <laughs> um, all right, you got any other big lessons for the group? Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think that the, oh, actually, no, yes, I do. Um, so on the, on the subject of culture, uh, so I walked away from this event and I was super proud of my team leaders and my squad leaders. Like, to, I have the best team leaders and squad leaders in the 82nd Airborne Division. Um, I put them up against anybody. I asked them why last night. Last night I, I was like, hey, you know, why do you do what you do? Like, what, what is it about this platoon, about this company? What is it about you and your people that makes you do what you do? And like, I don't want the because I'm competitive. Like, I want the, I want the, the deep-rooted why. And the only other advice I, I would give as far as affecting culture is that if you ask your people why, they do what they do, why they wake up and they put on a uniform and they go the extra mile, you're going to discover some really interesting things about your people and it will help you drive culture the way that you want to go. Um, all, almost all of them were tied to you know, the overarching theme of trust and loyalty. And if you can capture a formation, like within the bounds of like, I do it because I don't want to let the person to my left and right down, loyalty. I do it because my leaders trust me to do my job and so I don't want to let them down, trust. Like, I, I do it because I'm treated like an adult, trust. Like, I mean, there's, if you can capture the wise and influence the wise to go into the trust and loyalty category, then you're gonna have a formation that will do anything for anybody within that formation. Yeah, um, one of the things I go back and read every couple months is you know, Sergeant Major Hall in the 1990s, he was the, the Sergeant Major for the Range Regiment. They, the fundamental determinative success or failure in combat is how a soldier feels about his or her peers and immediate leader. And if they love them and they trust them, that's what will cause them to, to lay it all out there. Um, all right. Hey, I appreciate your time. We got to end. You told me like a cool story. So, uh, the the book you got on small unit leadership, who gave you that book? So Sergeant Major retired uh, Mario Cockrell, or was um, the original like he was the the Muldoon originator. So the Muldoon platoon in two P, longest standing platoon name. And he was amongst the group of people that, that created the Muldoon platoon. So he, he just randomly stopped by the office and was like, hey, this is who I am. And you know, just wanted to come by and, and say, hey, introduce myself to you. Like, um, I have a, a soldier in my formation that he served with, or whose father he served with, who is now a Gold Star member. Um, and you know, he was keeping up with, with him and his progress. Recently graduated Ranger School, became a team leader in my platoon. And uh, so he stopped by, talked to me, and brought me a, his personal copy of Small Unit Leadership with the entire 
you know, front cover filled out with a handwritten note, you know, from him to me. And there's, I don't think there's a more powerful gift that somebody that can give somebody than like a, a personalized piece of literature that, you know, imparts wisdom like that book does with a handwritten note. Yeah. Um, so he's phenomenal and continues to support the organization. And I think it's really cool, right? And it's a, it's a, this important reminder that all, all these organizations that we serve uh, in and we're blessed to serve in is, are bigger than us, right? And, there, and there's people that have come before us that have, have really kind of put themselves out there, put energy into these organizations. And, it's, um, and then the people that we're leading, um, they're somebody's you know, son and daughter. They're special to all of us. And you know, my time with you, I mean, you're, you're exactly the kind of platoon sergeant that I want to leave my kids. And I, I just appreciate you spending time with us, appreciate you being here. And uh, I've learned a ton from you. And uh, it's been uh, it's been awesome watching you grow. It's been awesome watching your platoon uh, fight their way across Arnland, exerting dominance and doing great things for America. Thanks, Arn. Appreciate your time. Appreciate. Thank you for joining us on the Crucible, the JRTC experience. The Joint Readiness Training Center is the premier crucible training experience. We prepare units to fight and win in the most complex environments against world-class opposing forces. We are America's leadership laboratory. Again, we'd like to thank our guests for participating. This podcast was created and produced by Mr. John Mabes. It was recorded and edited by Chief Thomas Rich and researched by First Lieutenant Anthony Cho. Intro vocals were done by Mr. Robert Chopper. Special thanks to Captain Jermaine Branch and Mr. Jeff England from Public Affairs. Be sure to like and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest warfighting TTPs learned through the crucible that is the Joint Readiness Training Center. Follow us by going to https colon forward slash forward slash l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e forward slash j-r-t-c. We'd like to thank our partners at the Center for Army Lessons Learned of the Combined Arms Center, especially the JRTC Call Observations Detachment. Be sure to follow them on social media as well. Follow them at https colon forward slash forward slash www.army.mil forward slash C-A-L-L. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review us wherever you listen or watch your podcasts, and be sure to stay tuned for more in the near future. The Crucible, the JRTC experience, is a product of the Joint Readiness Training Center.